Hello, hello. This is FutureSight, a show from Capgemini Invent where we explore emerging technology trends and new ways for you to adapt and grow your business. I'm Gary Bemeyer, the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer of Capgemini Invent and the co-host of FutureSight. Joining me in today's episode as a co-host is Dhiren Velu from Capgemini. Dhiren has had a long career in artificial intelligence. He worked on the IBM Watson project back in the day, and he's currently the NFT stream lead in Capgemini's Metaverse Lab. In this week's episode, we're speaking to Finbar O'Hanlon. Finbar, in my opinion, is a true definition of a renaissance man and a man about town. He's a guitarist, a music composer and producer who's played with some of the biggest bands in the world and contributed to the soundtracks of some of your favorite movies. He's also a technologist and the inventor of Linus Video Systems, a company that provides a patented video content delivery technology which solves the fundamental challenges in the workflow and monetization of music and video content delivery over the internet. Apart from running these businesses and artistic collaborations, he's also a prolific speaker. If you haven't watched it already, I do recommend you watch his TEDx, The Complexity of Simplicity. And apart from doing all of this, he's now entering the NFT music space as well. So guys, with that introduction, Welcome to FutureSight. Thank you so much, guys. It's, uh, it's really amazing to be here in great hallowed company. Music NFTs, that's the reason we're having this podcast. And Diren and I have been talking about it for a while because we kind of feel that where music NFTs are today is in the same place that art NFTs were uh, around two years back. And today, what we really want to be able to do is break down both those things. Firstly, music how it's being created, how it's changing, the business models behind it, the incentive structures, and then go to the NFT side of things and see how it kind of addresses these changes as well. Sounds good. So with that introduction, Finbar, we always like to start these kind of episodes by figuring out who is this person we're speaking to? How did you become this person that you are today? You're prolific. You've played with some of the biggest bands. You've partied with, with movie stars. So how did this journey begin? Well, it's really interesting because, you know, what the, one of the first questions when people meet you, they ask is like, what do you do? You know, I, I used to find it very, very hard to explain what I do because I do so many different things. Um, I really just learn. But um, I tell people I've worked hard my whole life to be indescribable. Um, and that to me is something that um, is quite, it's fun on one side, but it's actually, it actually means a lot. So where did that start? I'm not really sure. I just know that, you know, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, um, I was labeled as ADHD or hyperactive or whatever you call it. I was just had a thirst and a hunger for trying to solve puzzles. And, and uh, you know, I was one of these kids. I wasn't into sport. I didn't really fit in. I was one of these weird kids. I'm sure there's probably a lot of the weird kids listening to this but um, that can relate to it. But, you know, I was one of those kids. I, I like to compete against myself. And I would, uh, when I found music, I was probably, I think, 10 when I f- first got my first guitar. And I remember my dad said, right, son, you've got to play this till your fingers bleed. And I went, okay, dad. And I went upstairs and I played and I came down and showed him my fingers bleeding. And he's like, no, 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 it was a figure of speech. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, but a lot of people say, well, how did you learn to code when you're a musician? And there's there's a lot of similarities. It's just people don't think that because they don't, you know, it's it's so far apart for them because they don't understand that world. But the actual pathway between the two, when you do both, is very similar. No, it does because this is actually interesting because um, I was reading a research report which was done by Stanford or one of these big schools. I'm not sure which it was. But they actually did a survey of a number of people who are pure technologists, like very technical people. 
And the stereotype is people like this are very analytical and they're not very creative, but they found that a large percentage, well over 50% of these people during their free time actually played instruments. So I think where people might get confused is the transferability of skill sets, because on one side, you know, you're reading musical code, but how does that actually allow you to, let's say, you know, read code in Java or C++ or Solidity or whatever it is? Well, it's fascinating to me because, you know, I say to people, if we look at music as a code, it's it's a codified language, okay? And it's a universal language. It works across... It, anywhere across the world with different languages, but it's more than a standard language where there's, where there's notes, which, which re represent, you know, a, a physical uh, structure of a frequency of sound. In, when you're reading music, it's, it's like hieroglyphics in a lot of ways. There's a lot of symbols that relate to the dynamics of how hard you play something, how much you pull back the, the timing of something, how much you accelerate the timing of something. How, and the, so there's all of these other, um, uh, pieces of code in the code that help navigate or help give you the expression. And if you played music and it was all the same velocity, if it was if the drums were always at the same velocity, there would have no feel in it. And so the, the, there's all this codified language around how do you create feel in something? And so when you go, it, and what it does as a musician, um, when you learn the, 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 the language of music and you start playing with someone, you start to develop observation skills. You, you, you develop active listening skills. And for me, it, it, I've been a very visual person. So even when I would construct, you know, big pieces of enterprise software, I would always start with the wireframes and the visual interfaces. And then I would assign teams to the workflows of those interfaces and get the teams, the technical developers to follow of that customer journey so they would actually develop based on a customer's experience. It, when I released my last album last year, it was called The Code. And what I tried to do was to try and do a science experiment and a music album, which also had a video track. So instead of a soundtrack, it had a film track which supported the music rather than the music support the film. But what I tried to do is in each song, I used hidden codes and the hidden codes are there to represent the, the things that are underlying in our life that connect us emotionally, spiritually, scientifically. So one song, I actually wrote the words to the song and transcribed the words to Morse code. And then I played the Morse code on the rhythm guitar. So in the song, no one would ever hear it because it's all instrumental. But then I wrote a booklet, which explains some of the hidden codes in each song. I had gravitational planetary data of azimuths and and then I had other things where I had DNA imprints of animals and I've sort of infused all that in it. And for me, it's like music has become this background playlist to our life where it's become a commodity. And what I, try, what I was trying to do with my music is just try and say, if I can create a storybook and explore some of these hidden codes, I might just get some people going back to active listening, going deep into the music rather than just this background thing while you're doing the dishes. No, I love the, the musical Easter egg. But now I want to ask this to Dirain because you're the AI guy over here. You've won a bunch of awards for it and you'd worked with, you know, on the IBM Watson project. So when you worked on IBM Watson or, you know, not just that work, anything which AI, have you seen the same kind of transferability? Like how was creativity important for you to be able to do what Watson was trying to do? Yeah, no, I think I was resonating a lot with uh, many of what Finbar was talking about. Code itself is a creative process. Writing a program is a creative process. So I started, I pretty much started my career as a graphic designer. Um, this, was, this was just during um, university time and I was doing freelance graphic work. And at that time, 
what I used to do is I used to create, Finbar, you might appreciate this and, and relate to this. Uh, I used to do fractal art, so digital art, which was basically uh, some form of a fractal. And it sort of really boiled down to a mathematical formula at the end of the day. So a code, in a sense, but then a code rendered beautifully, visually into, into art. So I used to print them. I used to print them and go and put them in art museums and sell them. And I would I would print out the formula at the back of it. So this was the, today you would call that an NFT. You would call that a, a non-fungible token in, in, in many ways. So the, I, was, I, was, um, I was always inclined towards creativity and I did a lot of these digital creative stuff. Later, uh, you know, during my artificial intelligence journey, we've we've done a lot of generative art. Even even recently, um, Carrie, you were, you were involved in some of this work at Capgemini as well. We started to use... AI or, or, or some kind of machine learning algorithms to produce art based on based on patterns, based on certain set of patterns. But then the fact that these these algorithms or these um, these programs they can just span across you know wider than the realm of what how we we think art. So it most of the times it surprises us on what what the computer thinks is art. So. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's it's always like one of those challenges that I come across when I try to make a definition for inventing and innovation. And the one that I've kind of settled down on is invention is when you use existing things, whatever it is, it could be a piece of code, it could be a tool, it could be um, an idea, but you mix them in different ways so that you create something that's totally new. And then if you go from invention to innovation, well, that's simpler definition, and innovation is essentially making an invention successful. Yeah, that's, I, I have a similar thing. I talk about it, uh, imagination is unbound thinking. Creativity is the reorganization of, um, of existing things to create solutions to problems. Invention is when you turn that process into something created, when it's actually made. That's the invention. And then innovation is when its value is measured by someone else. And it's, it's fascinating because what you were talking about, Doreen, in terms of that creative process, it sort of, it, it triggered, like I started this journey with a, a famous photographer called Mick Rock in New York. Mick did all the Bowie stuff, um, Blondie, Lou Reed Transformer. He was very famous photographer. He's got a, he's got a show on, uh, a documentary's past now, but he had a, a documentary on Netflix called Shot, if anyone wants to see it. So he's, I used to hang out with him in New York when we would um, we would do some projects together. And we did this project for David Bowie, actually, which was way back in the day. So when you were talking, Doreen, it really triggered it to me because I actually sort of forgot about it. But what I was doing back then was I was taking the sound um, fingerprints, putting it into a um, – it was basically a luminance and color generator plug-in for After Effects. And then the sound would then trigger a, a luminance overlay. And then what we would do is then overlay that on one photograph. So at 44,100 samples per second, which was at the time CD quality, we got 5,292,000 individual unique photographs of one photograph based on this section of the song within that second. So it meant Mick Rock could do original artwork and only do it once and so when you think about that, that was, that was 2011. So when we think about that, that really is an NFT, right? It's an original one piece of art. And as you were talking, I'm like, man, I remember that thing I did way back then. It was, and everyone thought we were completely insane. Like what, you're taking a section of a song and injecting it into a, a graphical overlay? But yes, yeah, it's, it's, 
you just triggered that memory. It's blown my mind. I just, you know, all these weird things I've done through my life that everyone's thought I'm completely insane. It's like, yeah, I remember that. It was cool. No, that's always the way it happens, right? But I think there's a real question of perception change. So what is active listening? Why should we relegate ourselves to only using one of our senses when we can have an audiovisual experience? Look, I work with a lot of artists, um, big and small, and you know, a lot of artists ask me to mentor them, and I'm doing all sorts of things. And I just, I think what a, what a lot of artists forget in a lot of senses when they're trying to make their craft a commercial craft where it drives revenue for them, is they really have to think through the lens of the listener. And they really have to think about what what am I do? What's the value of the art that I'm creating through an external lens? If I'm doing it for a commercial return, not if I'm just doing it for myself. And so, um, you know, the audio visual component provides a much more up to I'll call it up to date, but it's it's just a more engaging experience than than audio alone uh, in most cases. Purely because people's speakers now are Bluetooth speakers. They don't have their high resolution. They haven't got $20,000 speakers sitting at home. They, they're just, their Bluetooth speaker's fine for them. And so what we have to do is think about the environment that most listeners are listening on. And so, and what do they have access to? And so it's about using as much of that capability to get your message across and your art and connect with the listener. So when we get to this point of your question, um, Kerry, which is active listening, to me, active listening is the process of connecting with a listener where you take the listener through an entrainment process where they get sucked into your world through the, through the art that you're creating, and especially when it's an audio art. And so it's not a algorithm you create to create active listening. Active listening is the engagement where you're taking someone deep. So is this the objective of what you're trying to do right now with uh, Emmett Zappa and the new uh, project that you started, which is called Resonix? Well, so Resonics is a, uh, a technology I've been working on for about six years. Creativity always starts with a question, right? And so one of my questions was, why are we using 12-tone temperament tuning? Why, why is the mathematics of everyone playing in tune, how come those frequencies don't resonate with the human physiology? When in harmonic tuning, ancient tuning, tablas, sitars, flutes, they were tuned in a way where it resonated. And they go, oh, that sounds good. And that was it. It wasn't about, I need, this needs to be a perfect fifth. And it started on this journey about going, the question was, what if I could change the frequencies of a mixed piece of recorded music back to harmonic tuning? And that's never been done, right? Because since the first LP was created, there was a tuning methodology in place where the guitars had frets on them. The basses had frets on them. The keyboards were tuned to a, to a certain way. All the instruments were played in tune. And so it required a post-processing, a mastering process, which did the reharmonization of those individual notes in a scale. So it was an experiment, really, about what would it be like if I could actually change a mix where I could retune each note over four octaves in a musical scale? What would happen? And so the first couple of trials on that was people were saying, wow, that sounds like it's in surround sound. But I didn't do anything other than I didn't make any surround sound. It was out of two speakers. So then I started saying, well, what now if I could actually start to use some of these scientific principles, binaural beats, head-related transfer frequencies, you know, other psychoacoustic principles that have been used for, for, for decades, if I could apply them on top of a piece of recorded work which has been retuned to be more in tune with the human physiology, would that actually have a greater response? Can we drive human performance through, this, uh, through these psychoacoustic cues? 
And does it make it better if I put it if I put these cues on a mix that's been retuned to the human physiology? Now, after all these years, you know, and many trials and a lot of neuroscience and you know failed things and successful things, where we're we're moving into trying to move this into this this process where because it's forward thinking technology, we wanted to sort of try this in the NFT space. And that's what we're actually coming out with. No, but before we get to the NFT space, I actually found something really funny that you, while you were explaining what you're doing, binaural beats specifically. All right. Now, people don't know this about the rain, but the rain is like this extreme wine connoisseur. And he's actually using binaural beats in the opposite way. He's looking at it from a passive listening perspective, but to boost productivity. Now, let's be clear here. He's boosting productivity so that by six o'clock in the evening, he can pop open the bottle of wine. <laughs> so I find it interesting that we're using the same medium, but you're talking about it from an active listening perspective. And Dirain, now I'm switching towards you. You've been using it, not just you, you've been forcing your teams to use it as a productivity tool, uh, listening to it passively. So what's been your experience with this? Because listening to two beats in, in different frequencies, I just find that might confuse me. Yeah. But how, how, what's your experience with it and what's been the impact of it? Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not forcing my team to um, use, use them. <laughs> so he says, so he I, says. I, I inspire them with things that I pick up from all of my research. I think I, think I came across this, uh, must have been Huberman or, or someone that, that once mentioned about binaural beats in a podcast. And, and I started um, listening to them it works for me, um, Finbar. You know, I, I, what I understand is at a, you know at a very sort of a high level, it plays different frequencies in in your different ears. So you obviously need headphones of some sort, and it basically puts your brain into a state where it's trying to grapple these two different things being played to it. So either brings it in focus, or can put me to sleep depending on the the frequency that I've chosen. So it's uh, you know it could put me in a certain state a flow state or a delta state or an alpha state or whatever it is it just worked perfectly fine so you know every now and then with my team we talk about all the little hacks we we, we pick up um you know each one of us and i brought this to my team and i said oh you, you might want to listen to this before going into a meeting before you go into a presentation um think it works they've, they've had some positive reviews about it okay but what i'm getting from all of this is essentially there's multi-faced uses of music on one side you can use it just for the pure entertainment part on the other side you can do active listening and it just has a much more surreal uplifting experience and on the other side you can just have it working on the background but it's allowing you to kind of do something better um finbar this kind of sounds that these changes have happened or at least they've been highlighted because of the role of technology in the music industry itself and the way that music is is consumed and produced. But at the same time, what do you think is the biggest mistakes that the industry has made and is still making when it comes to using technology uh, and have they learned anything from it? Well, look, what people see from as a fan of music behind that is a really big machine and it's a very com it's a it's it's a very complex structure of rights products services there's a whole bunch of stuff and typically the artist is often not a, not across the understanding of all of this complexity and in a lot of ways uh, the industry in my opinion and working in Los Angeles and, and in the back end and the front end of these these industries it's it seems to me that it's been made overly complex on purpose uh, because it's very hard to get transparency on a lot of things when you have different rights deals and different publishing things sitting over here and X, Y, and Z. And you know, it was it's interesting when I sat with the Google guys and I was I was working with Dave Stewart from the Arrhythmics 
And we were working on a project many years ago called First Artist Bank. And it was uh, well before blockchain, but it was it was uh, in essence like a blockchain type thing for artists. And we were working with Visa and a few other big providers. But when I... When the recorded works of an artist, let's say the Van Halen Brothers or the Van Halen Band, when when Warner Brothers own the recorded works, the band doesn't own that recorded work. The actual label does, and they have a, a deal with the with the artist. But the recorded work is typically owned by the label. The label then commercializes that work, and so then when they do a a grand rights deal with say Google, it's there's no ability for an artist to say, well, even though you have those recorded works and you can play it on YouTube. I'm still not not allowing the mechanical component of my royalty. I'm going to stand in the way of that transaction being played, even though my rights are there. And and it was really interesting because I was saying, why isn't that the case? Why doesn't the 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 the, the big platforms have to do an individual deal with a publisher rather than saying, that's all we're paying, um, and just like a Spotify, we're the ones dictating the terms. And obviously, it's a lot easier to do that. It's a lot easier to build the commercial models. But anyway, the back end of this is a very, very complex ecosystem. And so even through the best efforts of some very senior technology people, some bankers, a company like Visa, which is multi-trillion dollar network, um, it was still very, very hard to even come up with a solution for it. And, and so when we talk about what are, the pro- what are the mistakes that are being made, I think that there's um, one of the greatest mistakes is that everyone's come at music from artists to labels to everyone with an abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset. I think that's probably the biggest issue. And so because of that, there's 50,000 songs being added to Spotify every single day. That's being allowed. There's, you know, it, it's such a crowded space that music has become so commoditized that the value, because it's so abundant, the value has become so low that people don't even think music has any value anymore. And so what that's because of a number of different things. But the, and that's okay. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that I think that that there hasn't been enough focus on scarcity of like how might I only do 10 of these? How might I only connect with this particular version for a hundred of my super fans and have it at this price? But I think what's what's great with the advancements of technology and what's starting to happen is that people are starting to realize that scarcity drives value, not abundance. So having access to everything, you know, I have a saying, everything is not important. And that doesn't mean that all the new artists don't have a a place in this world. They they have a place just as much as any others, but it's the, it needs to start from what is the value as an artist that I'm creating for my audience as an audience who are the people I can find out that really are interested in driving value for me as a listener? And then in the middle, who are in the business of really trying to help that connection between the person looking for that artist and the person that's trying to really create through the lens of their audience? Who's the one that's really adding value, real value into the middle of that equation rather than just a big behemoth business, which is just pump it out, pump it out, pump it out, pump it out. Because what's what happens is the more you pump it out, the less it gets, the more it gets devalued. No, but let's kind of like break down this complexity a little bit. And while I can't get into all the nuances of it, I think it kind of broadly falls into three categories. On one side, you have a creation, then you've got the curation, and lastly, you've got the distribution, right? So these, this is kind of like where the main pockets of complexity lie in the music industry today. So how do you think that music NFTs are actually going to be able to solve, if not all, at least some of these issues, and before you answer that, 
What is a music NFT? Well, so the way I look at a music NFT, it's an audio file that's been, um, let's call it, it's been assigned to the, it has a record on the blockchain. So it has a, um, it ha- it has a level of provenance, which says that this is my scarcity value, or this is my record that beside this digital file that can play anywhere in the world on anything, that's a copy of the file. This is the real file. So it, 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 it gives, just like the baseball cap that's got the sticker on it that says, I am the real copy, it, it, first off, it's, it's purely a, a token that provides provenance that says, I know where I've come from and this is a real version of something provided by the content creator. So it's, it, that's, the, that's the way I look at it. Um, now, that's from a, a technical aspect, but from an art aspect, a music NFT is um, a, uh, a product that is created by an artist that allows a multiple different ways to provide value to a fan or a super fan because of the uh, the advent of technology that means that you can do different things with it so you could have 10 songs of the ver- of this version which has got a slightly different mix for 10 fans or in 100 fans or you might do a uh, a, a specific version with something in it um, it allows the artist to think you know on a greater detail rather than here's one song and I'm going to push that out they can start to think about, hey, I might just do this a little bit and then release this in a, a specific way. So it just gives a um, uh, the music NFT from the art creation perspective means you can do a lot more with the art than just here's a song. From the distribution perspective, it means that you can actually build financial uh, models whereby someone in a cafe in London can have a license to play that song 10 times and then can be buy another license for 10 times, or they can buy it once. So that allows a whole heap of new commercial models. Um, it allows for new ways and new methods if you are releasing stems to allow DJs like Tiesto to be pulling in live different drum fills and keyboard things and put together live mixes where all those recorded parts of the stems have attribution back to their original owners. So it starts to think about how might we use components of art to synthesize and mix it together, but still the artist can can be paid back. And obviously, as you would know, you know, DJs for a long time would be putting together this stuff and the rights and royalties were a mess and sampled length times and and whether that's a mechanical or, or you know, it was all so complicated, but it, it opens the world now to where that stuff, new business models can be made on it. So Dirin, I want to kind of target some questions to you as well, because, you know, on one side, we're hearing about what the music NFT is and what it can actually do. But then when we look at our own work with NFTs, and we've been observing the space for a couple of years now, NFTs by themselves are changing, right? Today, you've got dynamic NFTs, nested NFTs, and now soul-bound tokens. So what are the, some of the the technical challenges that it, it that entail being able to make a music NFT? And what's the best kind of NFT abstraction that we need to use, whether it's dynamic, nested, or soul-bound, that is able to solve some of the issues which Finbar is, is explaining to us right now. Yeah, yeah. Music NFTs get get really interesting, and and Finbar, everything of how you were explaining it, that's that's spot on. Um, it's basically you can NFT or tokenize any digital asset, and and music today is mostly in the digital form, and therefore it's a digital asset, and you can tokenize it, and and the you know the the value proposition here is like you said, you can you can trace, uh, you can have provenance and go all the way to the source. 
you can see all the exchanges that this piece of um, asset has gone through. So how many hands has it exchanged and all the royalty and other things that you could sort of very easily track and, and trace and, 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 and obtain. And so keeping in mind that anything can be tokenized and music NFTs sort of bring a very different dimension, right? Like you said, they've got this natural thing around collectability and scarcity makes it a perfect kind of an asset for tokenization for NFT, um, you know, and then you have, uh, so just, just getting, just peeling the layers they carry and getting into the technicalities, right? Um, mostly the music NFT is a, is a music file. It could be an MP3 or a, or a wave file or whatever the format of the file is. But then you could have some other layers on top of it. It could have an artwork, could have a CD cover equivalent. Um, it could have a lyrics attached to it. So that could be in the form of a PDF. Um, you could have, um, so to the, the sophistication in the NFT is you could now have different types of files all coming together to form, let's say, one song NFT. It's got artwork, it's got music, it's got a PDF file. And you can implement NFTs in such a way that depending on where this NFT is launched or used, it can render it itself in different ways. So if you, if you stream this in Spotify, it plays the music. If you look at it in, the, in OpenSea, it shows the album art cover. Um, or if you use a PDF reader to read this, it shows the lyrics. So you can build the complexities. Today, NFT is, is so mature and there's so many different techniques that's come along you can make what's called a multi-resource NFT. Literally, you can bring all of these artifacts together and package them as a single NFT. You could have ownership at that package level, or you could even have ownership at the. You could you could say, hey, ten people can can have ownership on the lyrics, uh, but two thousand people can have ownership on the audio file, and only two people can have ownership on the art. The CD. you could do all of that. So so you you could uh, you could apply a lot of NFT techniques here. So, so, so yeah, Carrie, from a technical perspective, um, NFTs now are so much mature. There's so many different types of creative ways of NFT building that's coming along. You mentioned dynamic NFT, multi-resource NFT, nested NFTs. You could have NFTs within NFTs. But, but you know, keeping the technologies aside, you can put the artist or the creator in control now. You don't need a lot of middlemen or middle platforms. The creator can produce their creation and distribute it through token technology without technically needing anybody in the middle. So now that you're doing your own thing with Rosonix, and I, I wanted to kind of get your understanding on, number one, which are your own favorite um, music NFT platforms? What do you see the difference between them? You know, is there some kind of context-relevant uh, platform which you go for when you make a music NFT? Uh, and how do you see them getting interconnected? What are, what are your platforms? How do you see them getting interconnected? And what's it's actually creating? So do you mind if I tell you a story before, I, and then I'll answer that question? Just a very quick story about utility, because you mentioned the utility. We love stories. So many years ago, I worked with a guy called Scott Humphrey, who was a producer. He did Metallica, uh, you know, Rob Zombie stuff, Motley Crue, all these albums. He's a famous producer in LA. So we worked on a, an application called Jamit. And Jamit won Apple Music App of the Year, I think 2011. So basically we had thousands of, we took the multi-track masters of all these bands from Deep Purple to Motley Crue, Dream Theater, the Jacksons, and we remixed the actual master tapes. So we got them off the labels, we remixed them, we licensed them, and then we brought it up in an education app. So you could launch this app on your iPad, you could load Jamit, you could buy a song, 
uh, let's say Dream Theater image, uh, like uh, Pull Me Under, and you could pull out John Petrucci's guitar part and play along with the real album without his guitar part, with the, his effects. Then you don't have the tablature, and then you could actually record yourself with the real band. Now, moving on from that, when I released The Code, my last album, and I've talked to famous guitarist friends of mine, they make more money from selling their songs without their guitar on it. So guitarists can buy the songs and jam and try and learn their parts and play with the backing tracks. So with Jam, we sold songs for $5.99. We sold over 300,000 songs at $5.99 when the same song on iTunes at the time when you were buying them was 99 cents. That's a 500% increase. Now, the ability to, to look at that utility means that you know, if people want these backing tracks, whether it's karaoke, whether it's for guitar or instruction, that has a higher value price than the commodity of the actual mixed version. So the, the ability to have this flexibility in the file and to have these different models allows artists to understand that utility and start to drive into these different markets. Educational sector is huge, you know. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to wrap it on that. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, the platforms, I think what's really important for a lot of artists to understand is minting uh, NFTs cost money in, in a lot of cases, right? So the, you, if you're going to be minting your music, you know, you want to be looking at OpenSea or something on Polygon where you don't have the minting fees, really. I, I would always suggest that people start to play with it before they go in full on in their NFTs, go and make a couple, work out how it works, get your wallets going, get them linked, get some crypto, just play around and work out how it works before you go full on into, I'm going to mint all my NFTs. But yeah, I would think like, um, what is it? Mint Audio, uh, OpenSea, some of these, some of these platforms. Uh, uh, the first thing I would look at if I was an artist is where can I mint my music for free? There's no need to be paying, you know, um, exorbitant minting fees uh, unless you know you've got, you've got a, a, an audience waiting to go and buy these things, you know? So, Duran, you've been looking at a lot of these music NFT platforms as well. Any one of them really pop out to you and you say that, oh, they're doing something unique rather than just being able to tokenize a piece of music and just, you know, sell it over there or, and speculate? Yeah, I think, um, I think Sound XYZ is a good one, Finba. I think you could, you could mint there. I don't know what the fees are. Okay, check that out, yeah. Yeah, but like you said, you can mint it on an open marketplace. Uh, you don't have to have sophisticated contracts or anything to test the waters. Or you can do lazy minting. Lazy minting is you mint on demand. You, the user mints it or the receiver of this NFT mints it when they want it. Until then, it's not really minted. So there's some techniques, uh, some cost-saving, gas-saving techniques there. Uh, we worked with one of our common friends, uh, Finbar. We worked with PauseFest, and we, we helped them with their uh, mint strategy or the um, NFT strategy. I think the future is you'll have songs on chain and streamed from chain. I think that's the real future. We're not there yet. We're still looking at music NFTs as collectibles. So it's just the the skeuomorphic one step forward from art collectibles. So I think we've not gone to full on streaming on chain. I mean, there are platforms that do it, uh, um, you know, catalog, for example, and things like that. But I think the ultimate end goal is a completely DAO run streaming platform where creators and music consumers and producers all come together, you know, but, you know, around the Web3 ethos create art, consume art. That's, that's the real future. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to one of the main takeaways that I wanted to get away from this this episode, which is 
Every time people talk about technology, whether it's like autonomous vehicles or quantum computing or all the other topics that we cover on this podcast, there always seems to be some kind of dichotomy. And when I mean dichotomy, what I'm saying is like today, this is how things exist and tomorrow it's going to exist in this way. And it's always like this dramatic shift. I'm a big fan of anything disruptive. It's, you know, something that I've, um, I've, I've structured my entire job role around. But more importantly, I also have the pragmatic understanding that this is always a, a question of transition that it's very hard to be able to switch from one way of operating and consumption to another one. So taking this into perspective, along with the fact that we've got so many different utilities, value channels, and platforms getting created in the music NFT space, I want to ask this question to the both of you of how do you think NFTs are going to be integrated into the music space? And what is this transition going to look like for the next year? and maybe a little bit further down the line. I think this whole thing is going to be driven through aspiration. So it's going to be someone who's like like in the art space who comes and makes a mozza out of their music. And that's going to be the driving force where um, everyone's going to go, it's like when Beeple did his big, you know, Christie's thing, everyone now is making NFTs. And I think this needs to be, a, I think there will be a seismic shift, but I think it's got to be created by someone who's created that seismic shift. And so the way the traditional... Uh, industry that I know, the music industry that I know, is they hang on for dear life to the old model as much as possible. They don't want to change anything. And so it's very hard for them to even move a little bit because they're leaving, letting go a little bit of control. But I think it, it, the music industry is one of those things whereby it is a unique beast. It's very controlled and it's very locked down. And so I think though it's one of those things like they held off streaming, like they... Look at Napster and look at all of that sort of stuff and the sues and the law- lawsuits and all the court cases. Now they're, they own these platforms. The labels own part uh, owners of all these platforms. So it, it takes a monumental event before the dam breaks and then everyone jumps on board. So I think at least the way I see it happening is however this evolves, whether it's on-chain streaming, whether it's, um, whether it's multiple mixes or however that works, there will be someone that comes out that breaks the dam, that goes and goes against the grain, that has enough clout, that has enough of a following to go and drive this. Um, and I think that that's going to be – if I look back in the history of, of the recorded industry, it's always been pretty much something along those lines that's driven that change. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't predict where what the technical functionality of it will be, but I think it will – it, it will be hang on for dear life until someone goes and creates the uh, cr- creates the the driver in the market. I, I think for music NFTs to really take off, we need to create tools that sort of put the artists and the creators in control. We don't have that yet, right? It should be really simple. It's it should be as simple as uploading a song using an admin user login in Spotify. It should be as simple as that. Yeah, it should be just like publishing a web page, right? Should it just go from Logic, just go send the mix, bounce the mix over to to the, to, yeah. Correct, yeah. I've, I've, here's my song, I've proofread it or whatever the equivalent is. I've, I've listened to the song, final, publish. Yeah? It should be as simple as that. And I think that's the first thing, that's the first barrier. You know, you need to really abstract all of these technical um, complexities. Also, if you think about IEP, there is no standard around how to monetize music NFTs. There is no set standard as yet. It's all, it's all sort of evolving. So I think there needs a little bit of smooth, smooth, smoothing out over there. Look, today, if I look at it, there's no really good place to showcase good music, right? We're using art platforms to showcase music. So you go to OpenSea, that was meant for, I don't know, JPEGs, NFT JPEGs, or you go to any other art, uh, NFT art showcases, they're meant for art forms, not meant for music. So 
we don't have these platforms yet and and, and they will they will come uh, sooner rather than later it's interesting you say that like cuz again historically like i look at some of my friends who are you know big rock stars they have no interest in learning anything like about this blockchain they're not interested they're not like us they're not driven by their passion to understand technology and so Whilst you might make the tool simpler, if we look back at the history of why a band manager came in the place in the middle, earlier on I said, you know, for those in the middle between an artist and a fan who can actually provide real value. And I think part of this evolution will be the rise of a new type of intermediary who's helping artists on board. You know, they might still have the tools, but it's not as simple as just uploading it from Logic. You've got to understand your marketing strategy, how you drive an audience. And I think there'll be a new form of, of manager who understands this space, who who can really help these artists on board. And that's going to then bring them value too. They can share, they can be a part owner in the band, in the contract, or um, there's, there's a lot of di- these different abilities now with the blockchain for them to be able to be part of the success rather than a fee up front. So, uh, you know, I think that um, I think it's going to be really interesting where um, I don't have a lot of faith that, you know, uh, not that I don't have a lot of faith. A lot of artists that I know just want to be artists. They don't want to know about all this stuff. They just want to, they're interested in making, in having the fans and getting the money, but all the stuff in the middle. So I think it, it does open a whole new opportunity for a new level of music curator to be able to be smart about how they develop the contracts and what does the business plans look like and what are these strategies um and let the artists do their, their 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 art, you know. And I think that those are the three main areas where the changes are happening. On one side, just the music creator themselves. I don't think we can use a blanket statement right now and just say that all musicians just want to focus on music and be completely oblivious to how that music is actually generating revenue. If you want to be able to be a successful artist, you've got to be able to make money out of it, right? So being able to kind of use these technologies and learn about it quite easily because there's so much resources today. I think that's really changing the way an artist defines themselves today in which they are a a one-man entrepreneur. Uh, In the middle, you've got the curation. I think the curation, we touched upon it a couple of times in this episode, whether it's using algorithms or it's just being able to sit down and curate really good music, that's something that's very important. You know, myself, for example, I really don't have time to sit and make bespoke playlists which are tailored to a certain mood or to a certain kind of event that's happening in my life right now. So if I can actually go and pay someone a democratic amount, an amount that makes sense to me, in which they're actually providing me to the service, I'm very happy because I've been able to save an hour of my life. And then on the last side, and this is where I think a lot of companies, especially large companies like us, really need to absorb this, the lack of a default community mindset. So Spotify, uh, surprisingly, writes this really good report, which they publish every year called Culture Next, in which they look at the consumers of, the, of, of their, their product on their platform and see how they're changing. And the last report, which they published, I think it was a couple of weeks back or maybe a month at the max, um, was all about how Gen Z thinks about music and consumption. They're no longer kind of going ahead and doing the whole, oh, I'm a crazy fan kind of a person. They also want to be involved in it. There's a lot more participation that they're looking for, it, collaboration, contribution, and not just being someone who's passive and absorbing whatever's put out there by whichever artist they want. And they have so much choice today that they can jump. So these three changes are extremely cultural, but they are leveraged through technology. And one of my favorite quotes is Ursula Le Guin, who's an anthropologist, 
she actually said technology is the carrier bag of culture. And I think what music NFTs are actually doing right now is showing how these cultures for different audiences are evolving and the role of music NFTs and all of it. So we're coming towards the end of this podcast. And Finbar, we have a bit of a tradition going on in this young podcast. We call it the quick fire round. And it's pretty simple. I ask around five questions using one word or just like very few words. And you have to be able to respond in the similar way. Either use single word or use less than five words to give your opinion about this one word that I say. Are you ready? I think so, yeah. Number one, record labels. History. Number two, streaming platforms. History. Number three, silence. Golden. Number four, Resonics. Inspiring. Number five, Metallica. History. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. That's going to, oh, that's, that's going to, that's going to stir a little bit of trouble. Well, I like story trouble. Oh, you asked my opinion. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to cater to the masses. We wanted it. We wanted it. We asked what we got for. I'm happy. This is a success in my book. Look, I love Metallica. I just, I, I just, I just think that uh, it's, what's interesting to me is that Stranger Things, uh, you, you get these people that are buying these big catalogs. And it just goes to show the power of the the medium, right? So the song itself, like Kate Bush, and you get a show that that reintroduces. I remember meeting Slash when Guitar Hero, uh, you know, had the Slash on that guitar that game, and that blew him up. He became bigger than the band because of the game, and but it just shows you that that it's the the music by itself has got a finite amount of value, but when it's attached to these other properties, it can just explode, you know. No, that, that's, I think that's a good takeaway and a good way to conclude the start the, this episode because it really showcases the power of the individual. For too long, we've seen creatives and the whole concept of the struggling artist just being taken for granted. This is the way things are, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that paradigm being able to transition, to be able to have a new way of looking about it, and of course it's going to have barriers, anything new does involve the necessity to put an effort so that you can adapt to it. But the fact that there is a channel of adaptation, I think that's something which is really interesting. And myself, for sure, I'm going to be looking at the music NFT space, seeing how it can be used in forms of creation, curation, investing. Well, you'll have to check out my new NFTs when they drop. They'll, they'll be coming out, I think, in the next week. So, Well, I was under the impression, I was under the impression that I was already on the whitelist. I mean, why else are you on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> Both of us. That's two of us. That's two whitelist spots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We got to get that, right? Some some kind of tertiary advantage of doing all of this. But no, it was, it was, it's really great to have got this insight from you. We will be keeping an eye out for the NFT drop when it comes out in the next week. You hear it here first. So Finbar, Dirain, thank you so very much for coming on the show. Finbar, could you tell people where they can find you? You can find me. I've got some music on my finbarohanlon.com website. Uh, my LinkedIn has all my projects that I'm working on, all the technology things, Resonics. Uh, so if you look at LinkedIn and just type in my name, Finbar O'Hanlon, that's probably the most up-to-date place where you'll find stuff from me. And my YouTube channel as well. So thank you at home for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to listen to some of our recent episodes on all things related to Web3. You can find the links in our show notes. Please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're present pretty much everywhere. And we will be back next week where we'll be discussing food waste, trying to understand the complex challenges around it, 
and how technology could provide an answer to them. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capture 9 Invent. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.